All right, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to grab one in the seat pocket in front of you. If you're a child of technology, you can get out your idle phone or your Satan song, either one. I'm going to assume you're looking at the Bible and not looking at Facebook. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 is where we're going to be. And we're continuing our journey through this letter that the Apostle Paul writes. And it is one of the earliest books that we have in the entire New Testament. Uh, Galatians, James, and 1 Thessalonians are considered in this uh, group as our first letters. What we know about it is that the Apostle Paul wrote it around the early 50s AD, which is interesting because as Paul is writing this letter, he's writing it to a group that does not even have a gospel account. Isn't that fascinating that even before Mark's gospel was circulated, likely Paul wrote this letter to this church and all that they have is the Old Testament. And so as they receive these letters, Paul is helping continue to reveal God's truth through his word. Now Paul's writing this letter to a group that he planted this church with uh, after he had left Philippi. You might remember as we went through things last week, we talked about the traumatic experiences that happened there in Philippi. Everything from uh, demons being cast out to jail sentences to then uh, chains falling off to the Apostle Paul actually leading his Philippian jailer to the Lord. And so quite a tumultuous time that existed for the Apostle Paul. And they left from Philippi and made their way eventually to uh, Thessalonica. But at this point in time, Paul is writing this letter from Corinth. And so we'll get into that in just a moment of how he made those travels. But he's writing this letter because he was initially very concerned with how is the church doing? How are they handling things? They were only with one another for three short weeks before he was ran out of town. And so he's got concerns for them. So he writes this letter, but he is encouraged by the report he gets back from Timothy. That it wasn't that they were struggling. They were actually flourishing after just a few weeks of time that Paul had with them. And so he begins this letter, and it really breaks up nicely in two sections. Chapters 1 through 3, he gives them a personal encouragement. The Apostle Paul is moved by how well they've done, and what he uh, proceeds to do is gives them reminders. I want to remind you of all the ways God was faithful while we were together. And I've brought that up to you for the last several weeks because I don't know about you, but I often need reminded. I need reminded of God's goodness in my life because I forget. It, it slips right out of my mind. I, I can't remember all the ways that God's answered prayer. And so I've encouraged you to journal. It's a wonderful way to be able to document, to go back, to flip through, to be reminded of God's goodness in our life. And as he reminds them of their goodness, what he does is he gives them really an outline of their faith in chapter 1, verse 3. He says, I'm remembering your works of faith, your labor of love, and your patience of hope in our Lord Jesus. And so we have a nice little outline of the letter. And what's he doing right now? He's reminding them of their work of faith. He will, in this chapter, discuss their labor of love and then how they should abound in love. And when he concludes in chapters 4 and 5, he's going to draw out the hope that they have in the Lord Jesus. And that hope really lies in his return. That they had some confusion going on within the church. He's going to work to lay it out, to, to draw clear points. But what he wants to make very certain for them is that Jesus' return is imminent. Regardless of where you stand on your end times, your eschatology, no matter how you fall, uh, what you cannot deny is throughout the New Testament, Jesus has made it very clear, he is coming back. A return is imminent. 
And so as he lays it out, what he wants to point out is that we are not, as believers, appointed to wrath. We were not. And and the reason that that is so vitally important for us is because it directly impacts how we view the character of our Heavenly Father. It directly impacts how I view Him. If if I know that He will not leave me, He will not forsake me, He's not going to leave me here appointed to wrath, it changes how I feel about my Father. And so Paul wants to make that very clear. And in light of that, he wants to then encourage them in their ministry. And so as he encourages them in ministry, what he's saying is in light of the imminent return of Christ, operate with urgency to the people that you know and you love and you want to see them for all of eternity, reach out, connect with them, draw them into Jesus, share with them. And on top of that, we are to live with eager anticipation. Why? Because this life is full of tribulation and the trials and the persecutions that happen. And so oftentimes we need this reminder that he is going to come back and I can anticipate. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. I'm ready to go. So urgency and an anticipation are how we are to live as believers. Now, chapter 3, as Paul's going to wrap up this time of personal encouragement, and he begins in verse 1 saying, Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone. After the Apostle Paul leaves from Thessalonica, he goes to the small community, small in terms of uh, smaller than Thessalonica, the area of Berea. And when he arrived there, he opened scripture like what he would typically do to the Jewish synagogues, those that had possession of the Old Testament. And he began to share with them how Jesus is the Messiah, the prophesied Messiah throughout the Old Testament. He, he sought to take the Old Testament and reveal the New Testament. And I've shared with you a, a little a phrase that I like. It's that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. I think I got that backwards. The Old Testament is the New Testament revealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament concealed. And so what we see is Jesus actually throughout the Old Testament scriptures. Now, what I loved about the Bereans, and I want to go to Acts chapter 17, verse 11, and this is why if you've ever heard me comment about a message, I've encouraged you to to look up text, to take notes, because these Bereans were good about listening to the Apostle Paul, but then going and searching the scriptures themselves. Acts chapter 17, verse 11, he said, These were more fair-minded than those of Thessalonica, in that they received the word in all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. They listened to the Apostle Paul. Hey, fantastic message. We are going to go double-check. The old discount double-check. We're going to go back. We're going to make sure that what you said is actually accurate there, big boy. And so I would always encourage you to Jot down scriptural references. To be a Berean, to dig into God's word, to see for yourself that he is who he says he is. And so these are they that did just that. Now from Berea, Paul went to Athens. And so a little map up there for you uh, that are geographically challenged. Philippi is where uh, Paul started in Acts 16. He went to Thessalonica in Acts 17 and Berea and eventually made his way down to Athens before winding up in Corinth where he would then write this letter. Now, verse 2, and he sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith. As Paul is in Corinth, or he's there in Athens together with Timothy and Silas, he becomes concerned for the church in Thessalonica. Why? 
They'd only spent just a few weeks together. And so he had to appoint elders and leaders quickly and leave that church. And he's wondering, how are these guys doing? I'm concerned for where they stand in their faith. And so he sends Timothy while he and Silas go on to Corinth back to Thessalonica to check on them, to to see how things are going. And as he sends Timothy, he refers to him here in chapter and verse 2 as a minister of God. Now that's important to note because Timothy is a minister of God what we need to know is that a minister is one who serves. I think oftentimes, especially in our culture, we have tended to elevate ministry, elevate positions in the church, and what happens is they become almost like a, a deity-type figure or ones that we're to actually lay down and serve. But the reality is, for a minister, we are called to serve. Think about the one that we are to imitate, Christ Jesus. What did he do the night before he was to give his own life? He He washed feet. He wasn't out there lording his power over people, but instead he was getting right down there and getting dirty, helping people. And so as a minister, and by the way, it's not just people called into ministry, that each of you are called into a ministry of your own. You're the evangelical outreach of this church. And so as we go into our workplaces and into our homes and into our neighborhoods, we are called to actually minister to, to serve One another. And so here's Timothy. He was one who was willing to serve. He was also a fellow laborer in the gospel. This could be like a a team player is another way to look at it. That Timothy was one that would come alongside those that were hurting, those that were ailing. Galatians 6.2, to bear one another's burdens. To come alongside a fallen brother because we are the body of Christ. And when one of us is suffering, when one of us is hurting, we are called to come alongside, not to tear down, not to put our thumb on, but to actually encourage and bring along. Because as the body goes, as the parts go, so go the body. And so this is Timothy. He's a team player. He's a minister of God. Now, verse 3, as he continues, that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened, and you know. And so the Apostle Paul uh, was not at all surprised by the tribulation and the persecution and the affliction that comes upon him. That in fact, as Paul was being called into ministry, you might remember his name was actually Saul of Tarsus. He was himself a great persecutor of the church. He took delight at going out and grabbing a hold of these Christians, these that were a part of the way that professed the name of this Jesus of Nazareth, and drawing them out of their homes. He would have some killed, others jailed. He was going after the church with both barrels. And as he's on his way to Damascus with a letter in his hand from the high priest that said that he could arrest people on the spot for worshiping this Jesus, he is met by the risen Lord on the road to Damascus, knocked off his horse, blinded. And so this once great man that was a persecutor of the church says to the Lord, Lord, how must I serve you? What can I do for you, sir? And the Lord had him led by the hand, blind into the city of Damascus, not to persecute the church, but to actually be a minister in the church, to serve the church. Now, as he arrives in Damascus, a man named Ananias gets a word from the Lord. And the Lord tells Ananias, hey, I want you to go down to the street called Straight. And I want you to find Saul of Tarsus and pray for him. Now, can you imagine if you're Ananias, how you might have felt? 
uh, Lord, excuse me, hello, hello, are, are you sure it's that Saul of Tarsus? You might not have heard the news, Lord. Maybe you don't check the book of face. But this guy is out uh, killing Christians, murdering people like me. Are you sure this guy? And the Lord says to him in Acts chapter 9, verse 15 is actually where I'll pick up. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And here it is in verse 16, what I wanted to highlight. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. The Lord was so gracious to the Apostle Paul, this great persecutor of the church, as he signed up willingly, Lord, I'll go anywhere you call me to, he wanted to show Paul just what it was he was being called into. And so for Paul, he was not shocked in any way by the suffering that would come upon him. That's what he's trying to communicate to this church in Thessalonica. And so a little bit of an aside about suffering or trials or tribulations that I wanted to draw out of this is that, first of all, when we wonder why do we have to suffer? Why do we have to have tribulation or persecution in our life? Here's the first thing that suffering or persecution draws out, is that it gives us perspective. It gives us an appreciation and a perspective that we otherwise would not have. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, this is what the Apostle Paul says in verse 4. He says, who comfort, I'll start in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who in verse 4 comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted. So understand that as you experience a trial or a tribulation and you are so convinced I must be the only one. Maybe I'm the only person on the planet that feels that way. Uh, You are most assuredly not. That in fact, what God is allowing to take place in your life is that he is going to first comfort you and then he is going to give you an additional perspective so that you can go and comfort others. No one understands that which they have not experienced. And so... For the Apostle Paul, through his suffering, he has additional perspective. He's able to come alongside these who are suffering persecution and say, I know how you feel, brother. I know exactly how you feel. Now let's turn to the God who comforts together. The second thing that suffering or persecution or trials do in our life is that it purifies us. It purifies our faith. Now, you might know that the Lord looks at us like a precious metal. We are like gold to him. We are so valuable. And I get excited thinking about pure gold, like this is how the Lord views me, how wonderful. But do you realize that in order to be purified gold, we must be uh, heated up? A fire is needed for the gold to be purified because then as as the metal is heated, what happens is the impurities... And the imperfections, they all rise to the top, and they are scraped off. I get really excited about being pure gold. The whole fire and purification process, not so much. It's a little bit more of a challenge, right? But to be pure gold, to to be warmed up, to be heated to the point where we can be purified, it's a blessing. 
And so the Lord desires to purify us. But here's what I want to note is that while we are being purified, while we are being heated up in the midst of that trial, I love this, that he will not leave us there alone. That he desires to be right there in the fire with us. So much so that when you go back to the Old Testament story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Their Hebrew names were Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. Their lives changed as they were brought out of Jerusalem against their will by King Nebuchadnezzar. And even though they served in his cabinet, when they would not bow to his God, Nebuchadnezzar's order, his command was to throw them in the fire if they won't bow a knee to the false God that I've erected. And so here they are in the fire, thrown into the furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 3.24 was astonished as he rose in haste and spoke to his counselors and and said, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? And they said, It is true, O king. Verse 25, he says, Look, I see four men not bound but loose walking in the midst of the fire. And they are not hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. It is so valuable for us to understand when we're in the midst of the fire, He has not placed us there bound, but loosed. And if loosed, then we are not alone. He will be right there alongside us. And so the truth of a trial is that we will never be closer to Jesus than when we're in the midst of a trial. One of my favorite quotes from Corey Ten Boom as she survives Nazi concentration camps, because, not because she was herself Jewish, but because she simply housed Jews during the Holocaust, is that she stated that you may never know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. The closeness that we have to our Lord when we are in the midst of a trial. Now, the next thing to note about trials is that they do not make us. They simply prove what is already in us. They prove, they show what is already there. They're like a mirror for us to be able to see what is taking place in our own soul, into the very depths of our being. And I think that's valuable to note because, uh, first of all, God is never surprised Like there is never a time where he is up in heaven as we completely and utterly blow it. Where he goes, oh, you don't say, oh, myself. It'll take you a minute to get that one. But he is never at any point surprised by our actions. You know who is? Me. (laughs) I'm the one that's shocked. I'm always the one that's surprised. I was so certain that I was going to handle this trial, this tribulation really well. But what a trial does is it reveals what is already in us. It rises to the top so that we can deal with it. This week I had the opportunity to drive around the the new high school, Charleston Middle School campus. Has anybody drove around that thing? That is stinking awesome. Like, it is fantastic. New asphalt all around. It looks so beautiful. Could use a little bit of grass, but it looks fantastic. And I was dropping Cameron off uh, for basketball practice early, just kind of like, wow, I got my coffee in my hand. I'm dropping my kid off. I'm singing, you know, praising the Lord. And you can imagine as I'm, as I'm driving around that new campus, and, I, and I've got my coffee, and I'm so excited, what happens if uh, Nico Asphalt 
well, they forgot a spot. Or they just missed an area, right? And instead of praising the Lord, I hit a pothole, a bump in the road. And the coffee that was in my cup, it no longer remaineth in my cup. It runneth over into the lap. Now what happens is I go from being the singing, praising Christian to then the cursing Christian, which is a way different type of relationship. But what, what you find is the coffee that was in my cup, it was already hot. It was hot when I poured it in there. But it, it wasn't recognized fully and completely until it was in my lap. And that happened when I hit the bump in the road. And so much of that is true in our lives that we think we've got it all together, but it's not until we hit the bump in the road until what was in us becomes all over us. And then we realize just how much we need Jesus, that much more to deal with that situation. Now the last point I want to make when it comes to trials and tribulations, and this is important, so please listen, it's that God doesn't allow these things so he can condemn us. As a believer in Jesus, we are not appointed to wrath. He is not looking to condemn us, but actually to discipline us. To allow us, as a father, to be disciplined. And you think about how much you love your children. Does it look like love when we don't give any discipline whatsoever? Not at all, right? We discipline from a place of love and caring and compassion. And so much is true about our Heavenly Father. He desires to redirect and to discipline us. Now, we continue on in verse 5. He says, For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith. I wanted to know how you're doing, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you, and our labor might be in vain. But verse 6, Now that Timothy has come to us from now and brought us good news of your faith and love that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. So as Paul gets word of how the church in Thessalonica was doing, he was so comforted, so excited to hear how they were walking with Jesus. I can't tell you how exciting it is to find out how people are actually doing in their walk when they're walking with him. This was enough that regardless of the persecution that Paul was suffering, whatever he was going through, he's saying, look, now we're all good. Now I feel fantastic. And John would say something similar In 3 John verse 4, he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. What joy there is knowing that our children walk in the truth. Be it spiritual children or physical children. This is what Paul's saying. Now verse 9, he continues and says, For what thanks can we render to God for you? For all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God. I am overjoyed in you. I'm not concerned with myself at all, but I am taking incredible joy knowing at how well you're doing. Verse 10, he says, Night and day, praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking by your faith. I find it interesting that as the Apostle Paul couldn't sleep, what he did was he stayed awake and prayed. He prayed for those churches and those people that were on 
his mind. I, I find this convicting because when I can't sleep, what I so often do is uh, complain. <laughs> I, I, com- I cry out to the Lord, why can't I sleep? I toss and turn. And yet what I do not do is I don't spend enough time praying for the people the Lord has put on my heart. But as Paul prays for these people, he is so excited to see their face, to encourage them to perfect their faith. Now this is fascinating because he knew these people for all of three weeks. These were were relative strangers. The Apostle Paul's awake all night praying for these people who he barely even knew, which reminds me that while blood is thicker than water, that the Spirit is thicker than blood. That when we have this connection together as a family of the Holy Spirit, while we have family connections that are strong, the reality is if you have family that don't know the Lord, you can go all the way on the other side of the world to Africa, to Asia, and meet with believers that you have more in common with than some of your own family. It's a tight connection. You may not even speak the same language, but you have this connection because of the Holy Spirit. And this is what the church looks like. It's all this diversity with complete unity in Christ. And so Paul is able to pray for these that he loves so dearly. He continues in verse 11 and says, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you, verse 12, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you. And so the Apostle Paul is going to begin to close in a prayer. And he's going to start by praying that the Lord would cause love to actually abound in one another. What happens is we accept Christ and a tremendous change takes place. And we are so apt because of this tremendous change that he's allowed to happen in our life to go, Lord, look at how much better I'm doing than I was before. I mean, I've got it going on, right? I've I've accepted you. You're cleaning stuff up in my life. But Paul, as he prays for this church, he says that I pray that love would actually abound. And for this church and for the church today and for us personally, individually in our lives, the danger zone is that we can accept the Lord and then we can be really, really content with where we're at. We can be so excited that we've got salvation, our life's going in a better direction, that we begin to just settle in. Just be comfortable in the spot that we're in. What the Lord wants to do is actually shake us up a little bit. I'll go to Jeremiah chapter 48. As Jeremiah is writing here in Jeremiah 48 to a a group of people, Moab, you might remember Moab as cousins to Israel. As uh, Abraham had his nephew Lot, and they went off in another direction towards Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot, through a relationship we don't need to get into this morning, had two sons, Ammon and Moab. So these would be cousins to the children of Israel. But here they are, and in Jeremiah 48.11, the Lord says, Moab has been at ease from his youth. He has settled on his dregs. He has not been emptied from vessel to vessel, nor has he gone into captivity. Therefore, his taste remained in him, and his scent has not changed. 
Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I shall send wine workers who will tip him over and empty his vessels and break the bottles. You see, for Moab, who was set up for success, he was supposed to be blessed, but instead they had settled in where they were at. They had gotten comfortable. And what the Lord does is he gives a judgment on Moab and he compares them to wine. Now, important when we talk about Bible typology is that wine in the Old Testament is a picture of joy. Think about when they would typically consume wine. It was a wedding feast or feasts and festivals. It was a time of joy when they came together. And so wine is a picture here of joy. And yet what had happened is for Moab, they had let the joy settle. They had let themselves just be comfortable. And so in that day for winemakers, what they would do is they would stomp the grapes, like what you see in the picture up here. They would step in the vat, stomping on these, and as the juices would then go down, it would go into a vessel. And whatever uh, grape skins that would be attached to it, or, or dirt, or whatever nasty thing is on this lady's feet, like whatever was in, in that vat, it would go down into the first vessel. And as it would sit, and they would let it settle all the debris, all the, the, the dregs would settle down to the bottom. And what the winemakers would do is then take that vessel and they would pour it into another vessel. And after several days had passed and the dregs had settled, yet again they would take the vessel and they would pour it into another vessel. And after that would settle, they would take the vessel and pour it into another vessel. You get the idea. Sometimes six, seven, eight times they would pour the wine from vessel to vessel until they could have pure wine, pure joy. What he's comparing to here is Moab has settled on his dregs. He's allowed comfort to take hold. And now what's happened is the joy has gone bad. It's actually spoiled. They had, you guys know it. You lost that love and feeling. Whoa, that love and feeling. They lost that love and feeling and it's gone, gone, gone. Whoa, whoa, whoa. No Top Gun fans out there apparently. <laughs> Take that, goose. They had lost the love and feeling. They needed to be poured from vessel to vessel. The same is true with you and I. What can happen is we get ourselves settled in. We get into the comfort zone. We feel really good about the spot we're in. And then the dregs begin to go to the bottom. All the debris, all the grape skins that we didn't want to deal with, we were fine just letting those things stay down in the basement. I don't want to deal with those. And so what the Lord is saying is, I love you too much, I need to pour you into a new vessel for love to abound, for love to increase. What happens is when we get poured into a new vessel, for at least me, is I begin to cry out, pour me! Oh God, why'd you let this happen? But what he desires is for us to cry out, pour me, Father. Would you please Pour me into a new vessel. I want love to abound. I want love to increase. And the only way that can happen is for you to pour me into the next vessel. And so the encouragement here is for us to mature, 
to grow so that love can increase so that when we have situations where we're being poured into the next vessel and we're very uncomfortable with this whole process is that we can realize love is increasing purification is taking place and who knows a little joy might just splash out on people all around us and we might be able to pray father would you please pour me now as we conclude with verse 13 And so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and with all his saints. So as the Apostle Paul wraps up his prayer, three major things you're going to notice he prayed for. First of all, he prayed in verse 10, I desire to be with you. I'm excited about being with you And I'm looking forward to that day where we can be together. Secondly, he prayed that love would actually increase, that love would abound. But finally, he prays that they would be blameless in holiness. Now, don't cheat and look at the screen, but note what Paul didn't pray for. He did not pray for the persecution to go away. Isn't that fascinating? That more often than not, What Paul didn't pray for was persecution to leave. It didn't mean the miraculous didn't happen, didn't take place. But what Paul knew is that they were being purified in the fire. They were being made holy. Now holiness, or sometimes called sanctification, this is a word that often wigs us out in church. In fact, most of Western church, we don't even want to talk about sanctification. We don't really want to address sin. We just want you to feel good and leave feeling better about yourself. But you see, Jesus loves you so much that he wants you to be sanctified, holy. He wants you to be set apart for his purpose. That's what sanctification really means. It means being set apart by God. Now, three big words that pop up in the New Testament that are all big churchy words, but they all have very real meanings for us. First is justification, second glorification, and third, sanctification. Justification is what happens when we receive Christ. At the point of salvation, we are justified. An easy way to remember it is just as if I had never sinned. I am justified by faith. In fact, what Paul says In Romans chapter 5, verse 1, where we see this word pop up. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have been positionally set apart for God, justified. He doesn't see our sin any longer. It's a beautiful relationship. Once we have said, Lord, we confess with our mouth, we believe in our hearts that Jesus Christ is Lord, and he's been raised from the dead for my sins, at that point we've been justified. Now the next word is glorification. I don't know about you, but as I get older, I realize more and more that this tabernacle that I am in is wearing out at a rapid pace. Uh, much quicker than I thought it was going to happen at now 43. So things are falling apart quickly. And what we realize as that happens is that this is not the permanent dwelling for my soul and my spirit. I am now looking forward to the day where I will, instead of having this tabernacle, I will receive the room that he has 
built for me, the temple that he has set aside for me to actually reside in, where I will be glorified. What John says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, he says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has been revealed that we shall be, excuse me, it has not been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall be as he is. When we see Christ Jesus high and lifted up, glorified, we will then receive our glorified body. We will be glorified for all of eternity. Glorification. Beautiful promise of the Lord. But that's not the one we're talking about this morning. We're instead talking about sanctification. We have been justified. We will be glorified, but we are being sanctified. It is a process to be set apart by the Lord. It, this is my present state. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. I'll skip to the left a little bit. He says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is faithful and just to cleanse us. He's already taken care of that part. You've been justified. But he is cleansing us. Be ye being cleansed. This sanctification is a process. I am cleansed and I am being cleansed. That may sound confusing. I want to encourage you just follow me around a little bit. I'll show you how it works. I think I'm doing pretty good. I stumble and fall. I think I'm doing all right. I trip myself over my own feet. I am being cleansed. I am cleansed. And yet God is continually working out this salvation with fear and trembling. I'm working through this daily. I'm not what I once was, but I'm not what I someday will be. And so this is the process of sanctification. This is what Paul is giving them words for. Blameless in holiness is what we are called to be. Now that whole process sounds very confusing and far too often what we desire to do is, well, if I just get it cleaned up, if I could just get the outside looking good, then I could go back to church. If I could just get it together, then I can make my way into that place and the Lord could maybe start working on me on the inside. But do you understand what Paul says here in verse 13? is that He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness. That we spend far too much time in our physical self, in our flesh, trying to clean up the outside. Trying to quit the thing we've been wanting to quit. Trying to set that sin aside. Hoping maybe in most cases nobody ever even finds out that the dregs that are down there, I can keep those things hidden. But what the Lord says is, I want to come and work from the inside out. I want you to be blameless in your heart. As Jesus is addressing those Pharisees that were so good about being blameless on the outside, they had it all going on. In verse 27 of Matthew 23, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside you are full of dead men's bones and uncleanness. Outside you've got it all going on, but inside you're tore up from the floor up. 
You're all a mess. You don't want to admit it to yourself. But what Paul is saying is, I'm praying for you to be blameless in your heart. Let the Lord work on all the other stuff you've consumed yourself with. Because he wants to sanctify us from the inside out. Now as as Paul is concluding this chapter, his encouragement there is that they would look for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ with all of his saints. Three chapters we've gone through, three times in a row, what Paul is encouraged at the end of each chapter is for them to look for Jesus. How is all this possible? Look to Jesus. Look to him and him alone. And what Paul is encouraging them to do is be ready. Be ready for his return. And I would tell you that for the majority of my life, I spent terrified because I was not ready. I wasn't even sure where I stood with the Lord. I wasn't even sure that I believed in Him. Yet I had just enough background in church to be terrified that if He came back today, I'm in a world of trouble. I don't know if He's real or not, but if He came back today, I'm in big trouble. That anxiety, that feeling, I can't tell you the burden that was that when I allowed Jesus to come into my life and lift it, how much better it felt. Lord, I don't have it all figured out, but I'm so thankful that you came and cleansed me from the inside out, that my lamp actually has a little bit of oil in it. I want it to where it's overflowing, but just a little bit of oil where I can have it burning bright. Jesus gives the parable of the ten virgins there in Matthew 25, and five didn't have oil when the bridegroom came. And five did. And those that did not, all the worry and the anxiety, the fear and the toil, and then cast into outer darkness when all it took was an ask, Lord, fill me up. Please come and reside in my lamp so I can burn bright and I can be ready. This is the encouragement for today. Know this about your Lord and Savior, that He misses you, that He loves you, And he deeply desires for you to be ready. And so, Father, we thank you and we praise you for your word. We thank you for the Apostle Paul writing this letter that is now 2,000 years old that speaks to us in 2022. Thank you, Lord, for how your word always meets us right where we're at. Father, we praise you for the promise of Scripture. We thank you that you will not leave us or forsake us. We thank you that you will be in the midst of the fire with us, residing with us in the middle of this tribulation that we're in. Thank you so much, Lord. Father, for those that have anxiety about your return, would you lift that from their hearts? Lord, help us to be a people that are blameless in holiness. Those that know you from the inside out. We are not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but because we just simply have a relationship, just a little bit of oil in the lamp, we have hope for the coming of our bridegroom. Father, cleanse us from the inside out. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please stand?
nothing I hold on to. It's 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 nothing I hold on to.